Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Rundell about his new book with the enticing title, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. David, I wonder if we could begin the interview by you telling us a bit about yourself. You've had an extraordinary diplomatic career, spending virtually half, 15 out of the 30 years you were in the U.S. Foreign Service in Saudi Arabia. That's quite unusual for as a career investment. Perhaps you can explain to us what sparked your interest in the Middle East, and particularly Saudi Arabia, and how that ultimately produced your book. Well, that's an interesting question, and I'd be um, happy to answer it. Uh, I wanted to join the Foreign Service, and I recognized that you needed to do something rather dramatic and special to pass that exam. I think the year that I took it, they had something like 15,000 people applying, and they ended up taking a little over 300. So it's a highly competitive examination, and you really did need, at least in those days, I think you still do, something to distinguish yourself. So I thought to myself, okay, I have to go learn either Chinese or Arabic. Uh, Nobody seems to know those languages, so not too many people. So then I sat down and I said to myself, okay, we have one embassy in China, and if relations with that country go badly, as they have in the past at certain times, uh, maybe there won't be much need for people to speak Chinese. Uh, but we have 30 different countries where embassies are, where they speak Arabic. So there's probably more opportunities there. So this was a rather uh, uh, sophomoric approach to what language you're going to go and study. But that's what I did. So I decided to go and just learn Arabic, which I did. I did that at Oxford. And then while I was at Oxford, everyone was focusing on the great civilizations of the Middle East. They're, they wanted me to study about things going on in Baghdad or Damascus or Cairo. And even then, I was really, you know, I, I was actually something of an outsider. I said, look, yeah, that's interesting, you know, but um, I don't think that's the future of the Middle East. I think the mid- future of the Middle East is the GCC and the major country there is Saudi Arabia. So I Today, that's very different. Uh, today, there is the Gulf Research uh, Council, which has an annual uh, conference in Cambridge with, with dozens of people from hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but certainly dozens of people, scholars from all around the world uh, who focus on the Gulf. But that was not the case when I was in graduate school. So any event, um, that's how I got started in wanting to do the Middle East and the Gulf in particular. But once I got into the Foreign Service, um, it was not the normal career path to stay in one country. Most people visit or they go back to one country uh, maybe twice, rarely three times. Uh, I went back to Saudi Arabia seven times. So that's uh, unprecedented, not on, but not only in Saudi Arabia. And this is just, just a fact. I mean, it's not meant to sound arrogant, but... What I did was unprecedented, not only in Saudi Arabia, but in any country. There's nobody else who's ever been 
the political counselor, the economic counselor, the commercial counselor, the deputy uh, chief of mission and the chief of mission, which I was for about nine months, um, all in the same place. So that's an unprecedented record, and it gave me unprecedented um, exposure to Saudi Arabia, which many people encouraged me to utilize and to write down so that other people didn't have to spend uh, 15 years trying to figure the place out. There are many books about Saudi Arabia, but there really was, and I have several hundred of them that I read over the last 40 years, but there was really no book that explained how the place worked, how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Uh, there were history books, there were political books, there were uh, economic books, uh, social event books, whatever, um, current event books, but a uh, couple of books now on Mohammed bin Salman, which are very good books on, on, on him. Uh, but there was really no book that if explained how the whole place fit together. And so I had a model which I had developed, which I had sort of used myself when I was political officer. I was both a junior political officer and later on as a senior one. Um, and so I uh, eventually sat down and put all that in a book. And that's how Vision or Mirage came about. Indeed, and I enjoyed reading it in the way that you wove history and uh, contemporary so affairs. I'm going to have to. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. Uh, indeed, and I enjoyed the way you wove uh, a, a history and contemporary events into into the book. Reading it, I got a sense that you depict King Salman as a reformer who had long been preparing for a day when he would ascend to the throne by the way he, for decades, governed the capital, Riyadh. Is that a correct interpretation? Well, I think he's been a reformer. Um, whether he expected to become king or not, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think he really expected that he would become king until maybe around 2008. You have to remember that it was the untimely death of his two brothers, uh, Sultan and Nayef, uh, that put him into the position to become king. Had they not died, um, actually they were younger than he is now when they died. So if they had lived as long as he did, he probably would not have become king. Um, so I don't think he spent his whole life planning to become king, but I do think that um, once he realized that was increasingly likely, he did begin to plan then. Yes. He, uh, so uh, by the time 2015 came along, uh, he had a plan by then. Yes. Uh, I don't I don't think he made a plan in, you know, 19 or in 2000. But uh, but and the other point you made is, was he a reformer? Yes, he's. You know, a reformer, that, I'm not sure that's the right word. Um, he had clear ideas about what he wanted to do. Um, his primary goal is to preserve the monarchy uh, and to preserve the unity of Saudi Arabia, which is made up of several distinct regions that his family united. Uh, his, and I, I think if there was one thing that you would call him a reformer about, for which he has a long history, it is his um, antagonism towards uh, 
corruption. Uh, he has he ran a cleaner operation uh, by Saudi standards. I mean, it's all relative what some of the things they do we, we would probably consider corrupt. But by Saudi standards, uh, he Riyadh, Riyadh ran uh, pretty cleanly, and he did not uh, skim vast sums of money like some other people did. Uh, and he felt that corruption was an impediment to national development, which it clearly is. And so when he became king, he tried to eliminate that. And he's and if you look at the reforms that he's actually carried out, that is really one that sometimes is overlooked. Uh, but it, it's significant, um, not only at high levels, but also at, at mid levels that they have they have gone after people who were corrupt. Uh, they, obviously, they started off with the roundup at the Ritz, which is celebrated, but that was not a one-off event. Uh, it's continued. And Saudi businessmen and bureaucrats will tell you that the, that the standards have changed uh, in a number of ways. Partly, uh, people are now worried about getting caught. There are whistleblower programs that you can use anonymously. Um but there are some other things which have changed, which are which perhaps um, are less obvious. A lot of contracting is now being done online, and that uh, that simply eliminates this. The whole concept of e-government um, eliminates a lot of opportunities for graft and corruption and bribery. I mean, it's all very open. It's everyone can see what the bids are on the internet. Um, so that has actually reduce corruption just as much as the fear people have of getting caught. And then I think another factor is, uh, which again is somewhat overlooked perhaps, is the social stigma of being corrupt has increased. A lot of the people that were most egregiously corrupt uh, were well known for what they were doing, but they were still prominent. They were still invited to all the A-list parties. They still sat on the boards of leading charities. That's not so true anymore. Uh, if you're known to be a crook, you may be shunned more than, um, and when I say crook, I mean, this is all relative, but, uh, you know, this, people know whose money has been obtained in somewhat underhanded ways. So, um, or in some cases, things which weren't really considered underhanded at the time that they did them, which is, um, which is upsetting to some of these people who would argue. I didn't do anything differently than everybody else. And to some extent, that's that's true. Um, so uh, I think those are the that's kind of a long answer to your question. But I, I think that uh, the king is certainly a reformer today. Um, and he has and the reason that he put his son, Mohammed bin Salman, into the position of authority is because he felt he was charismatic, aggressive. Ruthless, cunning, whichever words you want to use, enough um, to implement some of these reforms, which met with opposition. Many of the stakeholder groups that in the in the El Saud's coalition have one reason or another to be unhappy with some of the changes, and he had to um, he had to pick somebody who was something of a bulldozer uh, to get those reforms uh, through. And those reforms, you know, we I, I would imagine your listeners are well aware of many other reforms, but they've been social reforms. They have been um, economic reforms. And to some extent, there have also been political reforms. Uh, 
some of those political reforms, I would say, I mean, are not really reforms. The political situation has changed um, both in positive and in negative ways. Uh, we could talk about that later if you want. But the, um, the positive thing about the political change is that they made the transition from generation two princes, the sons of King Abdulaziz, to the um, generation three, which is the grandsons. Uh, and so um, that was not something that was going to be um, easy. It was always going to be um, a challenge. And it could have been very destabilizing. And so in the sense of what they achieved there, it's uh, something you could say what didn't happen, what they avoided, what they were able to uh, to not have happen, which was a Game of Thrones, a destabilizing Game of Thrones. So by putting in the uh, his, his son and, and eliminating most opposition, he did something that was positive. But at the same time, they also did something which is negative, which is they made the place more central. More centralized in itself is perhaps not a bad idea. That made it more efficient, but they certainly made it more authoritarian, and they certainly clamped down on dissent, and they certainly increased the level of fear uh, that most Saudis have of their government. So those, would, I would have to say, would go on the debit side. But uh, in general, if you can give you a look at it, there was more reforming than um, backsliding in, so far under King Salman. Which leads me to the fact that uh, since he's a, since King Salman has ascended the throne, he's broken with the notion that change in Saudi Arabia needed to be slow and gradual, and clearly believed that it could only be achieved with greater autocracy. If you look back at the, la- at the last five years since uh, King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed came to uh, came to office, would you uh, agree with that, or do you think that's correct? Right. Okay. See, what happens is when I talk, I have to turn the volume down and then I have to turn it back up to get to hear what you say. So I'm going to turn it down now so the echo stops and then I'll answer your question. Okay. The system in Saudi Arabia used to be slow, consensual, collegial, somewhat inefficient. Um, It has... And that was also part of the political structure in that there were these senior princes who were half-brothers or in some cases full-brothers who each had their own ministry with its own budget, in some cases with its own foreign bank accounts, uh, that there was in theory a centralized development plan, but that in fact the senior princes all did pretty much what they wanted. Uh, so it was not coordinated. There were really no, there certainly was no one checking or monitoring how they ran their various ministries. Those princes, um, and this system provided stability for a long time, for 50 years. Uh, people will say that King Salman ended that system Uh, That's somewhat inaccurate because really the system ended itself. The brothers all died. And so instead of the 34 sons of King Abdulaziz, you have more than 500 of his grandsons, all of whom thought they should be king. Uh, And you also came to a point where you had um, 
some serious economic and social changes that needed to be made, and that the slow, consensus-driven system needed to be replaced by a more centralized, uh, decisive, and fast system, uh, which also has become more authoritarian. Um, so they did that. I mean, the king and, and Mohammed bin Salman basically are now in charge of everything. Uh, they pretty much exerted their control over anything that was even vaguely independent, uh, from Aramco to the, the public investment fund to the different ministries, uh, including defense, uh, National Guard, uh, interior, all of the ministries that have any military force, uh, they've consolidated under themselves. Uh, so the, the place is, is fundamentally different in its political structure than it was uh, five years ago. The result of that is, as I said earlier, both good and bad, and that the changes that are happening uh, would have been difficult to have made under such a under the old system, which was more um, slow and 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 inefficient. You draw a comparison to Mikhail Gorbachev in the former Soviet Union, as well as the Shah of Iran's top-down approach. How do those examples compare to what's happening currently in driving change in Saudi Arabia? Well, I think the. Um, this, the problem that the Shah and the uh, that and the, and and Gorbachev ran into was that they attempted to have rather profound economic changes and social changes and not have much political change. So I would argue that over the next decade, uh, if Saudi Arabia is going to remain the stable place that it's been for the last 60, 70 years, they will need to increase the participation uh, and accountability of the monarchy. And I tend to think that they're smart enough to do that and that they have enough legitimacy amongst their own people to do that. I'm cautiously hopeful that Saudi Arabia will evolve into a more accountable monarchy rather than a police state. I think those are the two options. It's going to go one way or the other. And I think that the El Saud are not, um, you know, they're, they're not the Ba'ath Party. Uh, they're, they're not a ruthless, I mean, they, 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 they have a will to power and they want to hang on to power. Don't get me wrong about that. But they also have a relationship with their people, which is based on a lot more than just fear. And the people have accepted them and still do accept them. So I think there's a chance of them, and a pretty good chance of them evolving into a more participatory system, which didn't really happen in for the Shah and it didn't really happen in for Gorbachev. And those uh, systems imploded, which I think might well happen in Saudi Arabia if they don't uh, become more participatory. Indeed, what, what you're saying, and you seem to say it explicitly in the book, that is, that if the Saudi, if if the the regime the government does not become more accountable and more transparent, then un, uh, then the current situation becomes unsustainable and instability is almost inevitable. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say inevitable, but I would say it becomes more likely. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing that the Saudis have going for them is that in reality, they provide their people with a pretty good deal. Uh, those people, they, they, this El Saud manage Aramco well, and the money from that is distributed reasonably evenly across the nation. And the people <clears throat> have safety uh, in most cases from, <clears throat> they have a problem now in Yemen, but for most of the country's history, they've managed to stay out of wars. Uh, they, for most of their history, they have, you know, they just need to look around and look at Iraq or Lebanon or Syria or Yemen or Libya. Um, and, you know, they would pretty quickly conclude that they'd rather be in Saudi Arabia. So the, I don't think that the people are, you know, the people aren't likely to, how would I phrase this? I don't think it's going to become politically unstable in the immediate future, but I do think that over time there will be more demands for participation and accountability. Yes. Currently, the social and economic change process is being done with really very little effort to consult or to build consensus. Does that raise the risk of uh, instability? Yes, I think that's a good point. Uh, there was no real effort to get consensus on any of this. The um, this was a top-down, uh, fiat-driven uh, reform program. Um, I think it's, it's a little, it's a sort of two answers. One, was there an effort to get consensus? And there wasn't, that I saw, a big effort to get consensus, but there was, to some extent, a consensus that was already there because the people realized something had to be done. A lot of people understood in, you know, 2015, when oil prices crashed, you know, that, uh, that the government had to do something. And so they were willing uh, to give the king and the crown prince a chance. Uh, so while I didn't see any, you know, there was certainly no vote. I mean, the Majus um, Shura, the proto-parliament that they have, they certainly didn't have any debate on whether there should be a VAT tax or whether the Vision 2030 should be implemented. So it was not done in any kind of a participatory way. But I, but I do think that in general, most people recognized that something had to be done and they were willing to shoulder some of the pain that was that uh, came along with this uh, reform program, um, in part because they recognized it had to be done and in part because they were being, um, if you will, placated or whatever, distracted by all of the social changes which were happening, which were very positive, and everybody, or not everybody, but the majority of the people uh, were very pleased about the social liberalization that was going on. So to some extent, they were getting their circuses, uh, but not their bread, but they were okay with that for a while. Uh, whether they will remain okay with that is um, is a moot point. I think um, the, the now things are not good in Saudi Arabia economically, but people again are not blaming the government from what I can see in this. I mean, obviously to some extent, some people blame the government, but most people understand that this is all COVID related, that the whole world is um, suffering uh, from this uh, plague. And so they're not really blaming that on the king. Um 
You mentioned before the uh, the importance and also the popularity of the anti-corruption moves that led to the dramatic detention of hundreds of members of the ruling Al Saud family, as well as the country's economic elite in 2017 in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh. And in the book, you have, it sounds like what is almost an inside track on how these developments unfolded. And I was wondering whether you could give us a flavor of how how this happened and how it worked. Well, uh, there's no list, really, of all the people that were in there or what they, I mean, I'm, I, I suppose the Ministry of Interior has a list, but I mean, there's no public list of who got put in there and what each one had to pay. Although I've spoken to enough people that I have a pretty good idea of what happened. And I've, I've spoken to people who were in there. Um, although they're, they're under a lot of, ins- lot of pressure not to talk. So um, any event, I, without going into sources, yes, I've talked to a lot of people who know quite a bit about what happened. I think um, the book describes what happened. Um, some people were questioned ex- extensively. Some people were hardly questioned at all. Most people had to make some kind of a uh, settlement. Uh, some people did not. Uh, there, I think that the the Saudis would argue that what happened was essentially a plea bargaining situation where people um, made a plea bargain and then paid their fine or whatever and, and were allowed to go. Uh, some people were not allowed to go. They were people who had done something more serious or whose 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 corruption had had more serious consequences than just taking money. Uh, For example, some people in the Ministry of Health who had been held accountable for some deaths because of the um, shenanigans that they had been up to. So those people didn't get out um, as as easily. Um, I think the one thing I would mention about the Ritz-Carlton episode, which is again, probably your listeners might find interesting, is the effect it had on land reform. Now, most people, when they think about land reform, they, are, they think about South America or maybe Egypt or some in the Middle East, uh, but they don't think about Saudi Arabia. But the Ritz-Carlton was essentially a land reform revolution in Saudi Arabia, and that would require some explanation. Most Saudis now live in cities. There are very few nomads left. And um, in a city like Riyadh or Jeddah, it's uh, very expensive to own a home. Uh, And the price of your home is more the value of the land than it is the actual building. And that's the inverse of most places in the world, including the United States, very few places in America where the land is actually worth more than the building. Um, But that's common in Saudi Arabia. And uh, the reasons for that are twofold. One, the construction costs are cheap, so the buildings doesn't cost that much to build. But secondly, um, the land is very expensive because it is owned by a handful of people in most urban places is owned by a small group of people who basically do not pay taxes on the land and just leave it sitting there as a sort of investment. And, you know, someday they think it'll be worth more. So they just 
sit, let it sit there. And if you want to buy it, it's, they, they sort of drip, dribble it out in small aliquots so that it always remains expensive. This has been a well-recognized problem. And uh, King Abdullah attempted to, to fix it. So the first thing he did was he uh, started a housing ministry, which was uh, going to build everybody a house. And he, he discovered that the housing ministry couldn't get much done because they couldn't get any land uh, to build the houses on. So then he said, OK, I'm going to start taxing this. They called it white land, unused, undeveloped urban land. And so he invented this tax on white land. and. And they began to enforce it. They began to make everybody register. And, but then the people found ways to get around. It. And it was, they were clever. And they, they said, oh, well, this is not undeveloped land. They went and they built a little shack on the land or they you know, built a little house or something in a, some hugely valuable piece of land. So they would say, oh, see, it's not undeveloped. Or they would break it into tiny plots, which were too low for the uh, tax rates. So um, they had a lot of schemes to get around it. And basically, still nobody could get a house. So King Salman just said enough uh, of that. And so when you look at the numbers of um, what was confiscated in the Ritz, the number is a little bit over $100 billion. $100 billion worth of assets were taken from these people. But the vast majority of that number comes from raw land in Jeddah and Riyadh where in both of those cities, over 50% of the undeveloped land was confiscated. And the value you put on that land to get to this $100 billion could be pretty much anything you wanted because it's, you, know, you could say, what, what do you think the land was really worth? So that's how you get to that big number. And, but that, that land was now being distributed uh, by the government to people, and people are getting houses. And they made a mortgage law so that people could actually buy a house and so the Rich Carlton event uh, helped a lot of Saudi homeowners, and the people are grateful for that. So um, that I think is a, is a, is perhaps one of the more interesting and un, un, mis, not misunderstood but unknown features of the Rich Carlton uh, episode. As I said, it was very popular in in Riyadh. Um, you know, it was less popular in the West, where people tended to see it as something uh, extrajudicial. Uh, which, in, uh, in, by our standards, it would be. But in a monarchy, it's, the law doesn't operate quite the same way. So, any event, that's the story of the Ritz. Indeed. Another aspect that you describe is the fact that elite cohesion was a pillar of the Al Saud's rule. And the process of change that we're witnessing and the way it's being rushed through has undermined that pillar. How much of a risk does that pose? Well, I, th I think that the, the different pillars, um, and if I heard you right, did you talk about one pillar or all of them? I talked about the elite cohesion pillar. Okay, the elite cohesion pillar, yeah. Um, yeah, the elite cohesion pillar has been uh, weakened, definitely. Um, I, some more than others. Um, the tribal leaders have been less angered, annoyed, uh, but the royal family has certainly seen its privileges um, eroded, and there are certainly people in the royal family who are unhappy. Um, are they willing to 
try and overturn the apple cart? Uh, probably not. Um, but they're certainly less happy than they used to be, Some, many of them. Um, it's the same with the religious establishment. They've seen their prerogatives eroded. Um, the business community has seen many of their things that they considered uh, part of their business model have changed. Um, so there are a lot of people who have, who have reasons to be um, unhappy. Um, at the end of the day, I think that they still have more reasons to be happy than to be unhappy. Um, and as I said, one of the main reasons is they just look around and see what happens to all the other Arab countries where instability uh, is allowed to um, take over. So I don't think that the place is unstable, uh, but I do think that those... Um, pillars, and particularly the one we're talking about, the elite cohesion, um, has been uh, has been weakened. Yes, uh, all those people are a little bit less happy than they were five years ago. You, <clears throat> you eloquently describe in the book how autocracy and concentration of power, coupled with the sidelining of the religious establishment, and youth having different attitudes towards religion, individualism, and authority have created greater distance between the ruling family and the Saudi public. What potential consequences does that have? They created, created what exactly? They created greater distance between the ruling family yes, and the yes, Saudi yes, public. that's true. Um, yeah, that's that's very true. Um, the system, that's another reason why the system has to change. Um, the methods of you know, Saudi Arabia was never some sort of desert democracy where people, which people, I mean, it's a monarchy and the king is in charge. Uh, but there was a extensive um, range of personal relationships uh, between the royal family and the people. Um, I personally went to see Salman many times when he was governor. You, you know, Salman used to show up at his office or his, his modulus, you know, every day at 8 o'clock uh, for 50 years. And anybody could go in there and bring him their problem. And I went numerous times just to sit and watch. Uh, and that, you know, he you didn't vote for him, but he was there and had a problem. Uh, and I knew many people, you know, who would tell you that, you know, we had to go see King Abdulaziz and, you know, we drove for three days across dirt roads to get to Riyadh to see the king and the king, we went in and we saw the king and he talked to us and he helped us with our problem. Um, you can't do that anymore. So uh, again, it's not that the king destroyed the system. The, the country's too big. Security concerns are too great. Um, and there's a bureaucracy now, which is, you know, that you the king is not some Sol Solomonic judge who just decides, you know, land disputes out of his back pocket. Uh, there's a court, there's a court system. There's a, there's a, you know, there's much more of a bureaucratized, organized government now. So, um, yes, I think that's true that um, the, the other part of that is that in the old system, it was somewhat feudal in that if, even if you didn't go to see the king, 
many people, most people, I would say, were in some way the retainer of some prince. And they, you would have the a prince who you knew, um, who you would go to see if you had a problem with the government. Again, sort of like your congressman. I mean, not that he had to do anything for you, but usually he understood that was part of his job as a prince. And these people would have what they would call a modulus, uh, depending on how senior they were, would be how big it was. But senior princes had them regularly. Uh, and you could go there and get a free meal and uh, talk to them. And if they were a lesser prince, they might not be open to the public. But if you were their friend, you could go. So the um, and these people would would represent many of your issues to this to the government. Um, all of that is fading away. Um, and the ability of a prince to intercede with you, intercede for you with the government is much less than it was. The thing is, it's all becoming more, um, if you will, bureaucratized, regularized. Um, and the, it's, a, it's a good and a bad thing, really. It's, um, it, I mean, let's just say it has two sides. It's a Janus. Um, if the monarchy is going to survive... You cannot have 50,000 princes, and that there are, probably are at least that many. I mean, there are thousands of princes, okay? It's, people say there's 5,000 princes or something. That's just wildly underestimated. There are tens of thousands of princes. Um, now, some are very minor princes, but, um, and they're not all rich, but um, they cannot all be granted some special social status. Uh, or financial system of reward, which they get at the moment. They get, they all get some payment. Uh, they up until recently all didn't have to pay their electric bills uh, or their phone bills. And these kind of things um, were not sustainable at a time when you were telling everybody else that, you know, your electricity bill just got tripled uh, in the subsidy reductions. Oh, but the princes still don't have to pay anything. Uh, so that was that would have been hugely unpopular. So the princes, the, the role of the princes had to change. And they had, to, if you will, be downsized. Uh, and I think this is really what happened in a lot of European monarchies. Uh, if you look at how they evolved, um, most people in Britain are more than happy to be very deferential and respectful to the queen. And they don't mind that she lives in a big palace and has a yacht and an art collection. Uh, but they don't want, you know, 500 other earls and dukes and barons and counts and marquises all expecting some special treatment and payment from the government. Uh, so those people's role has been dramatically reduced. I mean, the House of Lords was, all, was essentially abolished as a hereditary body made up of medieval people medieval legacies. Uh, so in, in Europe, these, the nobility, if you will, which is what the princes are, was slowly uh, whittled away or um, I don't know what word would you use. It, it, was, it wasn't delegitimized, but it was made less um, prominent, less politically powerful, less economically powerful, less socially prominent. Uh, and I think that's what's happened to the, to the, to the El Saud princes as well. Uh, and I think that had to happen. But uh, to answer, that's a long part of, to answer your question, in doing that, the network that they used to create of uh, people who would, you know, you could you go to see them and they would help you, 
that has been uh, undermined to some extent, in fact, to quite a bit, of, pretty big extent. Could you, uh, <clears throat> could you elaborate on the phrase that you use, uh, key, the key man risk? With other words, uh, the fact that power is now more or less concentrated in the hands right. of one man, right. the crown prince. Yeah. Um, in business, the term key man risk is used uh, for a company or a fund where there's one guy who's the brains and, you know, if something happens to him, uh, you don't know what's going to happen to the company. Um, and right now there is key man risk in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman. Um, his father chose him. Okay. He was, you know, he was plucked from far down the, uh, if you will, the, the line of grandsons who could have become the next crown prince. In fact, his father essentially fired two uh, crown princes uh, to get to him. So it was, he was, he was not, uh, it wasn't inevitable. Um, his father picked him because he saw in him characteristics that he thought would be necessary. Uh, and his father engineered uh, really quite, quite cleverly and uh, very effectively uh, engineered his son Mohammed bin Salman's rise and eliminated any opposition, serious opposition. Um, if something happened to Mohammed bin Salman, um, it's not clear that his father has the physical or emotional uh, or mental capacity to do all that again. It's also not clear who he would pick uh, if he had to replace Mohammed bin Salman. And it's important to remember that most of the time uh, in the last 50 years, Saudi Arabia has had a king, a crown prince, and a deputy crown prince, which is to say a second and third in line. There is no number three man today. So that in itself is a destabilizing factor, uh, potentially. If something were to happen to Mohammed bin Salman, it's not clear who the next guy would be. Um, and what might happen to Mohammed bin Salman? Well, I mean, you know, God forbid, but he has enemies, all right? And he's, you know, he's at, He's, he's not in a good relationship with Iran. He's not in good relationship with uh, ISIS. Uh, you know, these people have committed terrorist acts in Saudi Arabia, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, the Iranians. So um, there's a war going on in Yemen. Uh, so there are people who, um, you know, he has, he has enemies. Uh, likewise, um, you know, if his plan, which is Vision 2030, and he's closely identified with that, or some of his foreign policy actions um, were seen to be uh, disastrous, uh, he could be removed. Uh, you know, and his, he, he is, in a sense, like a prime minister, and his father is still the king. So if his father decided that he was not doing a good job, he could replace him just as easily as, I, as he replaced the other two crown princes. So... Um, that's what I mean by key man risk is that uh, there's a lot riding on one guy. Without him, uh, it would be hard for me to see how some of the reforms would be. He's a champion for reform. That's one of the reasons his father picked him. And, you know, he's, he's a bulldozer uh, and he's getting things done. 
and he's popular uh, with the Saudis. Uh, so whether how you would replace him is not, not immediately obvious. So that's what we mean by a key man risk. In the book, you suggest that any effective opposition to the Salmans would be religious rather than secular or democratic. And you note that conservative religion would be the framework for demands of greater economic and social equality if the Salmans reform program fails. Why, why is it that it would be religious in nature? Well, the language of politics in much of the Arab world is today is uh, religion. Uh, and the opposition to status quo Sunni powers uh, is some form of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and these, we call them Islamists, what, whatever, but um, they have uh, an ideology which is, um, wants to change what, what they believe they want, how would I phrase this? They see Islam as a way to promote uh, social justice and economic equality. And they also believe that uh, hereditary rulers are not uh, part of Islam. And they have an idea that uh, a close alliance with the West is not something that uh, a good uh, Islamic government should, uh, should accept or participate in. They most definitely don't like Western culture. Uh, and so, which they feel is undermines Islam and is trying to secularize them, which it, which it probably is. Uh, so these people um, are the, the framework, really, of, of, of political discourse uh, in much of the Arab world and certainly in Saudi Arabia. So to the extent that there's opposition, there, there are really very few secular liberal people if that, I mean, that, that are going to create some sort of you know, democratic movement. Uh, the way that you would mobilize people would be through religion, and those people um, are um, organized. So that would be the second reason why they would be effective, is that they have both um, organization and, um, a, a, and a message which uh, resonates with people that if you um, if you're unhappy with your social or economic condition, the solution to that, uh, you know, 40 years ago, the solution to that was uh, Arab nationalism or Arab socialism that has been largely replaced by uh, religion or Islam. The title of your book goes to a question that you pose early on in the book, and that is whether Vision 2030, the Crown Prince's uh, reform plan, both socially and economically, whether they will prove to be successful or a deceptive mirage. To what degree does, does a, that risk destabilizing the kingdom and, and also uh, reinforced by the upsetting of the balance between tradition and change? So let me hear that again. The, how does Vision 2030 upset the stability? No, what I... What I was asking, or what I was saying, was the title of your book uh, basically goes to a question that you pose early on in the book, and that is whether Vision 2030, which is the Crown Prince's plan for social and economic change in the uh, in the kingdom, proves to be successful or a deceptive image, and to what degree, if it fails, or uh, actually otherwise. The fact that the balance between tradition and change 
has significantly changed in Saudi Arabia. To what the to what degree does that have a destabilizing effect? Yeah. Okay. okay, okay. Well, um, I think the first, if I got it right, the first part of the question is: is it a vision or a mirage? And um, the answer there is that it is. Uh, it's not a mirage. Okay. Uh, you can debate whether you think it's a, a vision, but um, these things are happening. Okay. The changes, the social changes, uh, are quite dramatic. Um, the obvious ones relate to gender. Uh, women are driving. Women are working in places they were not able to work before. The guardianship regulations, uh, which kept women uh, many things they couldn't do without the permission of either their husband or their father, those have largely been uh, removed. The in the other social sphere, the movie theaters, uh, music, concerts, uh, how people sit with the members of the opposite sex in restaurants, uh, sporting events uh, for girls. Women are now allowed to go to public sporting events. They actually have gym classes, which five years ago, girls didn't have gym classes. Um, a whole range of women can now check into a hotel by themselves. They don't used to be, if you didn't, you know, a single woman could not check into a hotel. Uh, the education system is being uh, modified quite significantly to have more modern subjects and less religion. Uh, they're starting to teach English in first grade, uh, which is which is new. Uh, so there's there's a lot happening there on this on the social front. Um, economically, it's, it's, um, again, it's not a mirage to say when, when they put a 15% VAT tax in place, you know, basically Saudis paid no taxes and now they're paying a, a basically what's a sales tax. And that is a big change. That's, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, the bond ratings for the GCC, um, countries, after the collapse of oil prices related to COVID, um, many of these countries saw their, their bond rating go down. And the Saudis did not. The Saudis, um, they raised taxes. Now, you can, economists can argue that whether that's a smart thing to do in a recession, uh, that, that's a debatable point. But the truth is that they, uh, they're coming, they're trying to balance their budget. They're, or they're getting closer to balancing it. And then they would have been if they hadn't put these taxes in. So they they put in taxes. They reduced um, subsidies on many things. They began. Uh, it's a long process, but they're beginning, uh, and they're they're making progress on uh, privatizing um, government assets. Obviously, the most obvious one is part of Ramco, but there are other things which are being being privatized. Grain silos being the most recent. Um, so those reforms, uh, there's there's an effort to develop a tourism industry, which has been set back by COVID, but was a reasonable plan. Uh, they have a natural monopoly on religious tourism. There's only one Mecca, so the extent that they can develop that for more pilgrims is is a viable plan. Their mining sector was um, is expanding. Their petrochemical sector is expanding. Um, you know, I don't think the Saudis are going to become South Korea or Singapore anytime soon or probably never. They're going to remain heavily dependent on the export of natural resources. 
but uh, so is Canada and so is Australia. Uh, so they don't need to become South Korea. They simply need to be a little bit less totally dependent on oil. And I think that's probably doable. So um, I also don't think that this is going to um, be done by 2030. Uh, I think it probably would have been more accurate to call the plan Vision 2050. But the incentive to do something that didn't have to get completed for another 30 years would probably have been less than uh, they wanted. So they motivated people by calling it Vision 2030. But I don't think anyone really believes it's all going to be done by then. But it, I will say this, that more will be done than uh, would have been done if they didn't have a plan. And if they hadn't to change the structure of the administrative structure of their government to make it more efficient, which they did. You describe the Saudi economy as distributive rather than productive and the and emphasizing maintenance of standard of living that is divorced from productivity. Is that changing and does that complicate diversification of the economy or streamlining of the economy? Well, that's the key question. I mean, you just hit the nail right on the head. Um, the Saudis live a standard of living which is divorced from their productivity. As long as they continue to produce oil, uh, they will be able to do that to some extent. But the extent to which they're able to do it is, I think, declining. So there is a managed decline um, in the standard of living unless they can increase productivity, which they're trying to do. But I, I, I would say that the, the average Saudi faces a, um, a future in which he's going to have to work harder or reduce his standard of living. Uh, and that probably not a very attractive picture to a lot of people, but it's a reality. You are not going to be able to work in a government job the way your father did. You know, and to be perfectly honest, you know, drink tea and read a newspaper much of the day and retire after 20 years with a big pension. Um, you know, you can still do that in Qatar, uh, but I don't think you're going to be able to do that in Saudi Arabia. So and I think, you know, that um, this can be done. It's not going to create a revolution. I think you see Saudis accepting this uh, reality. Uh, you see Saudis now taking jobs that um, they wouldn't have taken five years ago. You see Saudi women working in places they wouldn't have worked five years ago. Um, so there's a gradual, I, it's taking place. I think if it takes place at a gradual pace, it's probably not going to be destabilizing. And so far, uh, it's taking place at a gradual pace. Perhaps it's a twist of irony, but the public investment fund, Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, at the moment is emphasizing economic reform by focusing on uh, developing, oh, sorry, on, on, by focusing on foreign portfolio investments rather than it did, uh, as it, rather than as it did until 2016, focus on uh, the development of domestic industries. Is how does that fit into 2030 in terms of wanting to develop the, de uh, the domestic economy and diversify the, develop uh, the domestic economy? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, 
the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia was not a real sovereign wealth fund, as you just said. It was really more of a domestic development bank. Um, my feeling about that was that it made sense for most of the time that it was done. Um, the Saudis, are, they were not like Kuwait or the UAE, which are small countries with a limited um, industrial potential. They're, they're small. They're, they're, not, they're not, you know, Saudi Arabia is a huge country. It's as big as the United States east of the Mississippi. It needed a lot of infrastructure. It had the potential for building industries. Um, and so the Saudis didn't just take their money and invest it in some stocks overseas. They built a lot of stuff with the money and, and the public investment fund was the vehicle for doing that. Um, and I think it worked out pretty well. A lot of it um, was, was, very, was, was well done. Yanbu and Jubel are the two principal examples. And those are major um, industrial cities now, which are very viable component of the Saudi economy. Um, that said, now they're trying to change it. Um, and now they're, and I think this actually makes sense now, again, what they're trying to do now is create a, an investment fund, which will earn them some money that they can use when oil prices go down. So they actually refer to it as a, as a budget stabilizing fund. And that's the purpose that, you know, it, uh, it will, um, help them, uh, when oil prices go down. So, um, that's, that's their, um, their, their new plan, if you will. And I think it makes sense. Um, I'm trying to think, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 uh, this is really pretty much what most of the sovereign wealth funds do. Uh, and, I guess the other thing to say is, you know, what they're trying to do with Aramco is also part of this. Um, uh, the Aramco has some 20% of the global oil reserves under the ground. And that doesn't earn them any money. It just sits there. So if they can sell some of Aramco uh, and get some money that they could put into the stock market or even go buy some bonds, uh, then they'll get some return instead of just having the oil sit there. So and, and that all assumes, you know, some people would say they should do that because the oil is not going to be worth much in 10 years because everybody's going to be using wind or solar or something. So any event, that's another thing that they're trying to do is, you know, sell part of the, of Aramco so they can get some money that they can invest in other things, which will get them a, a return. So uh, any event, that's the idea of the PIF. Given the effort which, to um, has not been less transparent, I think that's another issue people talk about. It, it's not transparent really how it spends its money. Uh, so there's a lot of speculation about how well it's doing. Given the effort to reduce dependence on, on oil, does Saudi Arabia still matter to the West, particularly given the changing energy markets? And if so, how does the West encourage change without undermining stability? Well, that's two questions. Um, the first one's easy. The second one is very difficult. So let me start with the easy one. Um, yes. The Saudi Arabia still matters to the West. Uh, 
It has always mattered for reasons that go beyond oil. Uh, it is. It was a a strong ally in the Cold War. It has been a a strong ally in the war against terrorism. It is currently promoting a more moderate view of Islam than it had in the past, but it is now clearly trying to do that. Um, it provides stability in this part of the world by bankrolling many other pro-Western uh, stable governments or governments that could be unstable. Um, it, it's Saudi aid to Jordan and Tunisia and Morocco and especially to Egypt. Uh, all of these countries um, have received substantial aid to Saudi Arabia from Saudi Arabia. Um, so, and of course, the peace process um, is a major issue where the Saudis can be helpful. So the, the, the relationship goes beyond oil. That said, oil remains the most single, most significant part of the relationship, and Saudi oil remains important. And who controls Saudi oil remains important, which is to say, when I hear people tell me that it doesn't matter who's in charge in Saudi Arabia, because whoever it is is going to have to sell the oil, um, I think that that's a very dangerous comment. Uh, it's not only wrong, but it's dangerous. It's, a, it's rather like saying, when we get to Baghdad, the people are going to throw roses in the street. Uh, these are canards that people have somehow come up with, uh, and many people seem to believe. So let me try and debunk some of that for you. Um, if you're going to sell oil, uh, you need to produce it. And if you're going to produce it, you need to have political stability. Uh, and there are a couple of examples that I can think of. Uh, Iraq being one, Libya being another, where instability dramatically reduced the ability to produce the oil. Uh, and if the El Saud collapse, their government, the monarchy, and we end up with a dozen tribes fighting over oil wells, which is what we ended up with in Libya, uh, production from Saudi Arabia would be damaged. And while losing you know, a million barrels of oil from Libya affected the, the global economy somewhat, Losing 10 million from Saudi Arabia would be profound. So that's the first point. The second point I would say is that if you're going to sell your oil, you need to produce it. And to produce it, you need not only political stability, but you need to have well-managed oil fields and you need to have ongoing investment. The fields, average field depletes by about 8% every year. So you need a constant process of drilling new wells and managing old wells. And many com countries uh, have proven far less competent than Aramco at that, either in terms of their technical ability or their willingness to invest. And the two examples I would give you there would be Venezuela and Iran. Uh, Venezuela, can they're exporting 300,000 barrels a, a day, something, something ridiculous now. Uh, you know, when OPEC began, they were equal to the Saudis. The Saudi, they all, when OPEC started, all of the countries in OPEC had about a million barrels a day of production. Uh, today, the Saudis can do 12, and the Venezuelans are barely doing that. They, they're, as I say, they're 
exporting. I think it's about 350,000 was last week. So um, let's look at the Iranians. Um, well, under the Shah, they used to export or they produced 7 million barrels, almost 7 million barrels. And now today they're, they could probably produce three, three and a half if they had to, and they're exporting 500,000. So um, just because you uh, have the reserves doesn't mean you're going to produce them efficiently. So both political stability and well-managed fields are things that the current government provides, which are not necessarily guaranteed to be done by any other regime and have and aren't done by many other regimes. The second thing that the Saudi monarchy does, which makes them different and unique, is they serve a role as the central bank, if you will, of, um, of oil. That is to say, um, they, they maintain a surplus uh, production capacity of about uh, 2 million barrels a day, which by that they mean a surplus that they could bring online in 30 days and maintain for 90 days. And they use that when there is disruption in the global um, energy supplies, whether it's because there's a strike in Nigeria or a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico or whatever, uh, they, um, they step in. Or for that matter, quite frankly, if the United States decides we want to put uh, an oil embargo on somebody and we don't want the price of oil to go up, then um, we talk to the Saudis. And we did do that when we put these sanctions on, on Iran. Um, so they have this ability to help to manage the market. They do that because they don't want prices to be too high. They don't like prices to be too high because then people will find alternative energy sources or they will put a new layer of insulation on their house and reduce demand. They don't want prices to be too high because they don't want the global economy to go into recession. That would destroy demand. And they don't want prices to be unstable because unstable prices, again, make energy, make oil an unattractive um, part of the energy mix. And they want people to continue to buy oil for a long time. Uh, so, I, I, they, so they play this role of, as a, um, a central bank. And they also um, are the way that the U.S. government uh, influences oil markets. The American oil industry is made up of thousands of people who do their own thing, and, and there's no government official or agency that can tell all the oil men in Texas what to do. And even Putin uh, in Russia has a much more limited ability to control the, um, the oil businesses, if you will. There are many of them. That, well, not many, but there are more than one, and then they're, in theory, privately. Um, this Aramco is, you know, a one guy can make a decision as to what happens there. And so when you want to influence markets, talking to the Saudis is, is your best bet. And we saw that just this year when the oil price collapse, the price was falling down so much that it was threatening our own oil industry. And President um, Trump did not call the Iranians or the Algerians, I mean, he or the Venezuelans, he called the Saudis and they negotiated an agreement which reduced production and kept prices from collapsing. Uh, it's again not clear that any other government that uh, took over in Saudi Arabia would do that. And the reason I say that is because what they do is very expensive. It costs them literally tens of billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars to drill these wells and then just leave them shut in. No other country does that. No oil company would do that. 
Uh, and it's not at all clear that uh, a government um, other than the Saudi monarchy would do that. And then the final thing that I, I have to take uh, exception to is when I hear people say, well, look, even ISIS um, produced their oil and sold it. So, you know, it doesn't really matter who runs Saudi Arabia. If whoever it is, they're going to have to sell their oil to us. And I've already pointed out that they might not be able to produce it uh, or they might not be willing to be the swing producer. But think about this. Do you really want ISIS to own Aramco? That would be um, an interesting uh, experiment. Uh, we have enough problems with the Islamic Republic of Iran. I don't think we need the Islamic Republic of Arabia with their own version of the Revolutionary Guard funded by Aramco. So um, that is, I think, three reasons why I would argue that uh, Saudi Arabia still matters to the, um, to the energy mix of the globe. Um, I guess I, the final thing I'd throw in is that the United States has become more independent uh, of foreign oil, but many of our allies are not. Uh, Japan, Korea certainly still rely heavily on Saudi oil. Uh, so it's just because we're kind of uh, in a better position doesn't mean a lot of other people are. And finally, oil's traded on a global scale, and the price of oil in the global market will affect uh, the United States. Uh, even if we shut our own borders, it would affect um, our trading partners. And therefore, um, I mean, if we shut our own borders to oil imports and exports, then we'd still um, have to deal with the impact of high oil prices on the rest of the global economy. So, no, we aren't, we aren't um, immune from what happens in Saudi Arabia. David, I have many more questions and we could go on for another hour. But unfortunately, we're running up against the clock. Before I let you go, what are your future plans? What's your next project? Ah, my next project. <laughs> well, really, I think I've got to finish this one first. But um, that's a good question. And I, um, I hope that I will continue to uh, try to explain Saudi Arabia to people who would like to understand it, perhaps need to understand it, uh, and have not had the opportunities that I've had to understand it. So I live in Dubai. I have my consulting business and I have my home in Texas where I have my small oil company. And I anticipate running uh, both of those in the future. Uh, I don't anticipate writing another book at the at this particular time i think that was a, a an interesting experience but i'll leave that to uh to professional authors i wrote my book to help people understand the kingdom and uh i think that uh i'll leave it at that i think the other thing i'll do is i'll go fishing i'm um, once i get done with this book uh, i'll be uh go do some fishing david i look forward to your further insights and wish you Great luck with your other endeavors and enjoying the fishing. Thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and wish you all the best. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I hope I was able to help you understand a little bit more about the kingdom. You certainly did. Thank you very much. 